Welcome to Giant Steps, everyone. I'm your host, Doug Van Dorn, and with me is Rudy Landa, the producer and co-host and all-around great guy. And your, your humble servant. And your humble servant. <laughs> so this is the podcast where we talk about giants, and we talk about giant people, and we talk about giant ideas, and we talk about giant, just giant topics. We want to. Giant yep. topics. And we take steps and leaps forward That's right. in our thinking, in our uh, imagination, the way we look at the world. And so, you know, tonight, Rudy, I wanted to talk about something that uh, I think a lot of people are very interested in. And um, it's this topic of the supernatural. And, uh, you know, this is something that for whatever reason, I've kind of become a little bit known for. And that's really due to me coming across... Uh, a uh, friend who passed away back in January, Dr. Michael Heiser, um, ended up, I wrote the companion book to his Unseen Realm. And so I got to know him and we did a podcast together. And I did not know that. You did not know that? I did not know that. Yeah, I, I, did the, I did the companion to it. it. You want to hear that story? Absolutely. You're like a, you're like an onion, man. It's like layer. Layer after layer, man. <laughs> no, seriously, yeah, I, I, did, I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know him from Adam. And so, yeah. you know, I'm sitting here trying to figure out all this stuff that he's teaching. Um, and I didn't know anybody. So all I could do is really write. And so that's how the giant book came about. But then I uh, I uh, put together a catechism on the supernatural because I'm like, nobody, I guarantee nobody's ever done this. Plenty of normal catechisms on basic theology, but on the supernatural, I don't think so. And then one day it just kind of hit me as I was passing it out to folks in the church and they said they liked it. I was like, I wonder if I wrote to Dr. Heiser, if he might like actually write me back. And yeah. I was just thinking I would self-publish it and then yeah. see if he might do a blurb. But he wrote back within like 30 minutes and he said, really? he's like, man, I totally want to publish this. <laughs> I was blown really? away. That's what he said. Yeah. What year was this? How long ago? Oh man, I suppose this is like 2015 or something like like that. It's been a little bit. Yeah, that has been. So I actually had like 130 or 40 questions in it, and uh, he was he actually wrote me back about an hour later, and he goes, "I can't publish this," <laughs> and I knew why. It's because the ending of my catechism was like all this eschatology stuff. Yeah, and it wasn't really that he disagreed with it, but it was yeah. that it didn't have anything to do with his book. So I wrote him back and I said, "Hey, man." Um, I gave it to you to do anything that you want to with this thing. Yeah. So if you want to mess it up, do whatever you want to. If there's something <laughs> you think you can use, go ahead and do it. Yeah. So it was pretty funny. He knew that I'm a reform guy and I like the Reformation. So he cut it down to 95 questions, <laughs> 95 pieces. And so it ended up, yeah, they ended up publishing it through Faith Life and, and the Logos uh, publisher, Logos um, software publisher. It's a good thing you didn't find it like nailed to your door or something. That would have been bad, man. <laughs> know what I would have done. <laughs> so anyway, you know, this is something I've taught for a long time. And, and um, <clears throat> it's something I think a lot of people have uh, a hard time getting their mind wrapped around. And because uh, Mike's gone, um, you know, it's kind of there's the baton has been passed. And, and those of us who yep. were discipled by him, we really need to pick up the slack and and help people try and understand what, what he was doing with this yeah. worldview so now he actually called this thing a lot of things but but one of them that really stuck in my head when i was reading his book the first time 
before it was published and he was giving it out for free on his website to all his, his groupies that would listen yeah. to him on coast to coast. Um, he, he called it the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. And I think when I first met you, we kind of talked about that a little bit. And that was, that's kind of, this is kind of the whole step from the giants really yeah. into the watchers. Yeah. And the watchers. And for me, it's really, it's, uh, you know, into Christ himself. So, you know, it is a, is a fun topic, but it's also something that's super relevant. And the way I like to talk about it to people is that, is that there's kind of three stages to this thing um, to help them get their mind wrapped around it. And I have three or four Bible texts that we'll, that we'll look at for each one of those. And I don't know, I suppose we can maybe put those up on the screen Absolutely. Uh, later when people are watching it. Yeah, so I think a lot of people have kind of problems with this. Um, yeah. Thinking about the supernatural in the Bible, and I like to look at this not as changing anything that we believe, but as adding to it. So like moving from... Uh, a 2D to 3D. Yeah. Or for those of us who are older. Now, I wasn't old enough to remember this because I think it was in 63 or 64. I wasn't born, but moving from black and white TV to color TV. Doug, I'll, I'll have you know, being from South America, I remember well when color television came to Latin America, to, to specifically to Bolivia, where I live. And it was, it was, yeah, we, I remember, I remember commercials saying it's too, literally, it's too the script of the voiceover. It's too bad the television's in black and white, or you would love you would love to see these colors of the cars. <laughs> and these are like yeah. commercials. Yeah, and we're talking about mid mid seventies, late seventies. Oh you wow! Know? Yeah, so you guys are a little bit so, later. Oh, a little bit. <laughs> I, I, well, I remember that it was it was actually the first season of Star Trek. So that was yeah. I think sixty six. That was the year that um, they moved to color TV because I thought. Everything before that, Gilligan's Island, I think the first season right. of it was black and white. It was the same time. And then the next season, color. Yeah. Like Star Trek never would have worked if it was in black and white. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So Roddenberry lucked out with that oh, one. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what we're doing. We're, we're looking at Star Trek living color here when yeah. we come to yeah. the, the supernatural yep. world. Yep. So what I want to do is kind of take this in three sections for people. And we're going to look at what what he talked as the three falls of the bible so standard theology you know going back really before augustine but he kind of popularized it with original sin is really focused on the garden of eden story right with satan in the garden and the fall of eve and then giving it to adam and then yeah. adam falls and then in adam we all fall and so uh the whole idea of of this is the this is original sin this is where we inherit our sin and stuff like that from and so the church is really just focused on the Genesis three event. Um, now we'll get into this. This, is, this could be a different, uh, different podcast altogether. But Dr. Heiser did not believe in original sin, as taught in the doctrine of original sin. Although he did believe that every single person was sinful, he got there a different way. But I think he, one of the reasons I think he did that is because he saw the second fall story of Genesis as really of more importance to the Jews than the Adam and Eve story. And I've thought about that a lot over the years. And I think, I think he's, he has a point, but I also think he probably underestimated or, or underspoke about the Genesis three story because the Jews did write about that. They wrote entire books about it, like yeah. the book of Adam and Eve and stuff. So, um, so that would be the second story. We're going to look at the Genesis 6 story and the fall of the Watchers to get the giants. That will help set us up 
for the Deuteronomy 32 stuff. And then the third false story is also going to set us up for the Deuteronomy 32 stuff, because this is really the Tower of Babel story. And that talks about, that's where we'll talk about the inheritance of the nations. So maybe like the epicenter of, of everything we're going to talk about is Deuteronomy 32, um, 7, 8, and 9. And so uh, I want to go to that. And, um, and this was actually this was actually the the uh, passage that I first dove into this because I actually was preaching on on Exodus something in Exodus I don't remember what it was, and um, I had come across this article from this scholar that turned out to be Heiser on Deuteronomy thirty two eight and a little textual variant at the end of this verse the phrase is the sons of God and a textual variant is basically when um, some scribe took whatever the text was and changed it for, for whatever reason. Maybe they thought that there, it was something else, or maybe they were trying to interpret it. And so the, the alternate reading of it is the sons of Israel. So sons of God or sons of Israel. That's a huge, huge deal. Yeah. And um, anyway, he wrote this huge paper on it, and I was so fascinated by it. That was my deep dive. So I'm going to read this, these. I'm going to read the two verses, and then I'll come back to the third verse here. A little bit later, but it says this. Um, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you your elders and they will tell you when the most high gave to the nations their inheritance. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. So that's that's the. That's ground zero for what we're going to look at. Everything that we're going to see here in this episode is going to kind of be focused laser-like on that verse. And then, so it's almost like a funnel. So the Genesis stuff will go towards the middle of the funnel, and then that will take us outward to the New Testament and why this all matters, you know. So you have any thoughts on all this? Well, the first thing that, that comes to my mind is between the, the comparison of those two, the sons of God and the sons of Israel, uh, that there's a lot, there's a lot of latitude for a lot of interpretation between those two, especially as, as it concerns to, to the watchers, you know? Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say about all this. Yeah. The, r- remind me if we get to, if we get all the way to the end and I don't talk about that, those, the difference there, because the really the difference is, kind of the end of where I want to take this thing with people, which focuses on Christ. So, And, and just out of curiosity, or will this be revealed in the, in the, along the way, your, your stance on, on original sin, does it line up with, with uh, Heiser's? Um, no, no, I, I believe in original sin. I, I think it's a biblical doctrine. Um, you know, I understand why there, why people have problems with it. Um, but yeah, I, I also understand why he goes the way he goes, you know, but like I said, that's a whole nother podcast. Yeah, yeah, totally. totally. And it would be a fun podcast, too, I think. <laughs> I just wanted to get get your thoughts kind of as you're laying down the foundation to know where your, uh, you know, where your, where your stance is on so Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm an, I, I'm a confessional Christian. So in, in the confessions of faith, we, we have like basically all these basic doctrines that are laid out for us in paragraph, in chapter form and stuff. 
So, I mean, if I didn't believe in that, then I wouldn't be able to call myself a confessional Christian. That's right. a pretty major doctrine, at least in the yeah. Western side of the church. Yeah. So. yeah. so let's go to the kind of the first of these three stages, and this is going to be dealing with the fall or the falls of man. And this is going to center on the sons of God, this phrase sons of God. You won't find it in the first text here, but you'll find it in the second one. So the first one is like, foundational verse for really the whole Bible. It's kind of the, I like to think of it as the thesis verse of the entire Bible. Um, you know, you're writing a thesis in eighth grade, they teach you, or a paper in eighth grade, they teach you to put your thesis in the first paragraph, right? And yep. make sure everybody knows what it is. And I, to me, this is that verse. It's just so important. And this is the God cursing the serpent. Um, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So it's depicting a war. Um, the war is between, first of all, you and the woman. So yeah. the Nahash, the serpent, and the woman. But then second of all, in parallelism, it's between your offspring and her offspring. So that's the seed. So he's going to have a seed, and she's going to have a seed. Now, one little thing to kind of mention here is that you can think of these offspring both spiritually and physically okay so spiritually um we can think of anybody who who is a offspring of eve by faith you know trusting in christ and anybody who's an offspring of the devil by unbelief so jesus calls the pharisees sons of their father the devil, the devil. <laughs> right and um you know john talks about don't be like cain who was of the evil one right and those kinds of things so um and and the the father of lies, you know that that's the kind of idea spiritually speaking. But some people have taken like that Cain verse, and they'll go to Genesis four one, and they'll say, well, Cain was actually biologically also the son of Satan. And this is an, this is actually an old heretical Jewish teaching that's found its way into the church. And um, when you read that verse carefully, it's very clear that Adam lay with his wife and she gave birth to Cain. Right. So Cain is not the physical seed of Satan, but he is a spiritual seed. But, you know, so, so other people, they'll kind of stop there and they'll go, oh, all right. So so it's uh, only spiritual seed for Satan. And the answer to that is no, because the woman actually has physical offspring, not just spiritual offspring. Right. Those physical offspring are going to be the people that eventually become the Jews because the whole lineage is traced through Adam and Eve, right? right? But the physical offspring of the Satan comes in the second of these three fall stories, all right? So in the first fall story, the woman eats the, you know, the fruit, forbidden fruit. She falls into sin. Adam falls with her. And then this is what like Romans 5 is talking about, that all sin in Adam and stuff. So that's the original sin that's the first fall of man it's incredibly important to everything else because here we have not only the explanation for human sin and depravity but also for the gospel because um as that verse finishes the the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent right so that's the gospel the good news that we will get to by the end of this but first we got to get to some intermediate stages, right? So second story. This is Genesis 6, 1 through 4, one of these passages that a lot of people have no idea what to do with. 
I can remember early in my pastoral ministry, people asking me, and, and I just kind of said, I don't really know. And I just went with the standard answer to, of who these people were. And I said, well, basically what's going on here is that you have um, <clears throat> Christians marrying non-Christians. <laughs> They're like, well, how does that create giants? Right, I said, right. I don't have any idea. Giant mistakes. So, yeah. So then, <laughs> you know, reading Heiser uh, was the first person that I that I saw that really kind of explained this in a way that I thought oh, actually makes a lot of sense. So here's the text. Genesis 6, uh, 1 through 4. When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, and the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men of old, men of renown. So it's this little four, four verses that set the stage for the flood event. And um, they feel like they're kind of out of place and people don't really know what to do with it. We have long parallels in like the book of First Enoch, um, the book of Jubilees and other places that talk about this in more detail that give, and this is very important, they give the universal the 100 percent every single person on the planet that we know of opinion of what this meant <laughs> that includes every jew and that includes every jew every jew up through into the second century and every christian into really the fourth century okay so what does this mean so let's pick this part verse one when man began to multiply in the face of the land so man there's the word adam very, very important. When so this is this is the descendants of Adam. Okay. Yeah. When we know who he is, because we just saw that passage in Genesis three. Yeah. So Adam is multiplying the land, and daughters were born to them. To who? To the sons of Adam. Right. Very, very important. Yeah. So now the sons of God see the daughters of man are attractive. So daughters are born to them. Uh, and, and daughters of man are attracted to the same group. So who are the daughters of man according to the text? Well, they're the daughters of Adam. That's literally the word that's used, yep. daughters of Adam. Now, the, the, the kind of the historic interpretation, the one that um, most conservative Christians, I think, are, are um, used to hearing is that the daughters of men are the daughters of Cain. And that the sons of God who see them are the sons of Seth. Yeah. And this is something that you just cannot get from this text. It does not say Cain and Seth. It says the daughters of Adam. And right. Seth and Cain are both sons of Adam. It's not Correct. like one is son of Adam and the other one isn't, right? Yep. So yep. that means that whoever the sons of God are, they're, they're um, contrasted with the daughters of Adam. Now, they're not going to be the sons of Adam because that would just mean people are marrying each other. That <laughs> doesn't right, make any right. sense. Right. So who are in the world are the sons of God? So you, go, you have to go to other places in the scripture to really confirm this. But I think even here, we know who they are. If you go to like the Septuagint Greek translations, some of those translations say angels right there. But you can go to like Job 38, 7, <clears throat> where God is like confronting Job with, how wise he thinks he is. And he's like, well, where were you when I was laying the foundations of the earth and the sons of yep. God were shouting for yep. joy? 
So that's the same phrase, sons of God, b'nei ha'elohim, in the Hebrew, and they can't be, it can't be humans because they're shouting for joy before God creates humans. Created them. <laughs> right? Right. Right. So every other place that this is found, it either must mean heavenly beings like angels, or it can mean that. Um, and I would argue that really it has to mean that in every case. Agreed. And so the sons of God here are heavenly beings because they're contrasted from the daughters of human beings. And so this becomes the only interpretation in the early church and in and with the Jews uh, before the New Testament. Okay, so then it says they take wives of any that they chose. The taking there can either be, you know, in marriage, or it could be like, because the word wives is really, they just take um, women. So it could be something worse than that. It could be like rape. It could be, you know, it could be genetic tampering, I suppose. It could be all kinds of things that they were doing to them. It could be the way El Guapo took the women. <laughs> the flower. The flower right. must open itself. That's, that's El Guapo. the petal. You, yeah. You must you cannot force open the petals of the flower. <laughs> Would you say there are a plethora? What is a plethora? <laughs> I can quote that whole thing. That's ridiculous. How can you not quote that whole thing? No. It's amazing. Anyway, I digress. Let's uh, skip verse three because it's not really relevant to what we're talking about, other than the fact that um, God's going to uh, punish um, the earth for it. So his days will be 120 years. Basically, the idea there is that 120 years from now, God's going to destroy the <clears> earth. <throat> and then a couple of verses later, it says he's going to destroy all flesh because all flesh has corrupted itself. All flesh includes animals. Yeah. And uh, so that that also has to do with what these... Uh, sons of God were doing, but that's that's uh, for for another time. So last verse, the Nephilim are on the earth in those days and also afterwards. So here we have these Nephilim, whatever they are, they're there before and after. Yeah. And then it says, when the sons of God came to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. So who are these Nephilim? The last verse tells you they are the mighty men of old, the men of renown. Now, a lot of people will say Nephilim just means fallen ones. And that's just simply not true. And we know that because the word only appears in one other verse in the Bible, and that's Numbers 13, 33, where they're very clearly giants. Um, the sons of Anak are, we're like grasshoppers to them. And the word is spelled two different ways in one verse. And the reason for that is because one of those spellings is Hebrew and one of them is Aramaic. And the reason for that is because the people later on reading the, New Te the Old Testament all spoke Aramaic. And so they would have lost the meaning of the word. And so the editor would added that word in with the new spelling so that they would understand what the word Nephilim means. And yeah. the, that alternate spelling, the word means a giant. So a Nephilim is not a fallen one. A Nephilim is a giant. And that's why the Septuagint translates as giants. Now, the men of might, they're mighty men of old and men of renown. This becomes Giborim. Um, these are mighty men, the Giborim. And it, the Septuagint actually translates Nephilim and Giborim the same way, both as Gigantus. They're the giants. Yeah. Okay. So that takes us to the third story, our third false story. So you can see that this false story is <laughs> bad news. And God ends up destroying the earth because of it. 
Yep. Third false story, after the flood, God destroyed everything, and now the sons of Noah have expanded. We start in Genesis 10. Genesis 10 is a genealogy. Seventy nations are there. Seventy nations. And this includes um, one fellow who's the only one who gets any kind of playtime at all in Genesis 10. His name is Nimrod. And it says that Cush fathered Nimrod. This is Genesis 10, 8, 9, and 10. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. There's our word again, mighty man, the Giborim. So a lot of people think that Nimrod is somehow related to the giants here because he's given the same title. And I think that that's right. I agree with that. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. You could also translate that as against the Lord. So in other words, he's fighting against the Lord. Uh, therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and then it gives other cities. And this is uh, really important because Babel is what we find in the next chapter, chapter 11. Babel, sorry, Babel, then is Nimrod gathering all the people of the world together. They come to build a tower. This tower is basically a re-imagining uh, of the Garden of Eden. It's a giant um, mountain, a giant uh, ziggurat. Eden was a mountain, as we know from Ezekiel. And so they're basically trying to recreate the meeting place where God is on earth with man. Except for instead of God doing the creation and him putting man on it, they do the creation and put themselves on it. Right, right. And then they try to contact the gods, and then for it, God punishes um, mankind and separates them into the 70 nations of the world, according to the genealogy. All right? So that becomes the third false story. and. It's into this that we're going to move to stage two of what we're going to look at tonight. So in this stage one, we've looked at the sons of God, and we've also kind of seen the beginnings of something that will come up here that we read earlier with this idea of the number of sons of God are divided according to the you know, the, the men are divided according to the number of the sons of God, dividing, inheriting, all this kind of stuff. So let's go back to Genesis, or sorry, Deuteronomy 32, 7, 8. And we'll stop there again, but we're going to go through it this time a little bit more closely. So it says, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father. He will show you and your elders and they will tell you. So Moses is old. He lived a long time ago. And he says this was in the old days, many generations before him. <laughs> then verse 8, he says the most high. So most high is the word El Elyon here. And this is a title that is almost always used when God is being related to the Gentiles. And that's no difference here. So the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, and he divides mankind and fixed people according to the number of the sons of God. So notice that you have the Most High and sons of God here. So if, if sons of God is the right reading, then what we have is the Most High is the Father, and sons of God are sons, because sons receive inheritances from fathers. Right. Now, when is this? Well, he, he tells you when it was. It was when he divided <clears throat> mankind. And when does God divide mankind? Well, he does it at the Tower of Babel. Okay? So Tower of Babel is what we just looked at. 
that puts us squarely in that third fall area. And then it talks about the number of the sons of God. So now this is not explicit here in the text, but everybody knew it back then what that number was. And we see this, for example, in the Targum of this verse. The Targum is a basically a Jewish paraphrase in Aramaic of the Old Testament, where they would sometimes add just very little, kind of like the Living Bible or something, you know, where it's not a yeah. it's not a you know word for word translation, but it's trying to get the idea across. Right, right. And then other times <laughs> they'll have like longer expansions, but in this case, they they basically say, according to the seventy sons of God, the angels of the nations. So 70, where, where would that idea of 70 come from? Well, it comes from the 70 nations in the table of nations in Genesis 10. So, sons of God, 70, nations, 70. And this means that every nation is given a God to rule over it. That's the idea here of this worldview. Now, people all of a sudden, they freak out as soon as you start talking about a God to rule over. What in the world are you talking about? So we need to look at one more thing here, which is verse 9. And I'm only going to focus on the 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 kind of the verbs here or, or the non-nouns, all right? The, the non-subjects. It says, but the Lord's portion is his people and Jacob his allotted heritage. So portion and allotment and inheritance. That's what we're going to focus on here. So the Lord is inheriting Israel or Jacob, while the sons of God are inheriting the other 70 nations. So now we need to go through to what, this is where Mike talked about the um, Deuteronomy 32 worldview, or and the Deut really the Deuteronomy worldview, because there's, it's not just this verse, but there's others as well. So the next verse in this sequence in this part two is Deuteronomy 4, 19 and 20. And it says this, beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Those that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the he whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of the Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance. So actually these verses completely exactly parallel what we just read in Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9. So you have in the verse 19, you have people worshiping and bowing down to the sun, moon, and the stars, which are called the host of heaven, and they're worshiping them. And it says God allotted them to the people. Same language as Deuteronomy 32. Yep. But the Lord inherits Israel. Same thing as Deuteronomy 32, 9. Second verse, second passage here is uh, Deuteronomy 17, 3. Because people don't like the language of gods, but it's because they don't understand what the gods are. People think, well, if you believe in more than one god, then you must be some sort of a polytheist that puts all gods on an equal playing field. And that's right. just not biblical right. at all. The creator god is totally distinct and different from any so-called gods that he has created. Right. Just because they share the word gods or in hebrew elohim it doesn't mean that they're all have share all of his attributes right okay 
So verse uh, 17.3 helps us understand this because it's a parallel to what we just read in chapter 4. It says, and they have gone and served other gods and worshipped them, the sun, the moon, or any of the host of heaven which I have forbidden. So that verse actually calls the sun and the moon and the host of heaven gods. That's what the verse says. I, like, I didn't make that up. That's what Moses said. Absolutely. Okay. Then you have uh, the last one will be Deuteronomy 29, 26. It says, and they went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. So isn't that interesting? Because now you have the gods being allotted instead of the sun, moon, and stars, and hosts of heaven being allotted. What does it mean he didn't allot them to them? So this is where I want to bring in. Uh, this is where I want to bring in um, a, a a fellow that Dr. Heiser was not aware of until I read this to him, and he was, he was kind of blown away by this verse, and he started using it afterwards. It says from Plato, and this is from his Critias, which is. Um, one of the two places where he really talks about uh, his whole story of Atlantis. And in it, he talks about Poseidon being the god of Atlantis. And um, this is what he has to say, because it's really interesting. And in fact, there's church fathers like Justin Martyr that said that Plato actually gets this from Moses, which means that somehow there was contact between the Jews and the Greeks way, 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 way back in like the 7th century or earlier, yeah. B.C., Listen to how he starts this. In the days of old, the gods had the whole earth distributed among them by allotment. That's not Moses, that's Plato. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. It's crazy, right? Absolutely. And then he goes, there was no quarreling, for you cannot rightly suppose that the gods did not know what was proper for each of them to have, or knowing this, that they would seek to procure for themselves by contention that which more properly belongs to others. They, all of them, by just appointment, obtained what they wanted and peopled their own districts. And when they had peopled them, they tended us, their nurslings and possessions, as shepherds tend their flocks. And then he goes on to say that Hephaestus and Athena were distributed and received Greece by allotment because we are, we are the wise and and good people here. <laughs> very interesting. That's yeah, very, very interesting. So, yep. you know, Greece gets one particular god um, and uh, Babylon gets another and so on and so forth. And there's another way, another another way to help people see this um, that doesn't use the term Elohim or gods, but uses the term um, prince. Okay, so you go to Daniel 10, for example, and you find... Um, Daniel 10, 13, it talks about um, the prince of Persia would not let the angel, you know, they were having a battle. Um, and it took three weeks for him to answer Daniel's prayer because the prince of Persia was like somehow blocking him. Now, explain to me how if this is talking about, you know, like a King Cyrus or something, how a king, a human king could block an angel for three weeks. Not happening. Not happening. <clears throat> it's not happening. And then you also have um, just a few verses later, Daniel 10, 20, it talks about the prince of Greece. Well, that's literally what Plato just talked about. These right. are the princes of the gods. It's the same idea. The princes are the gods or the watchers or the angels. They're all just different terms that convey different senses of, of who these entities are and what Absolutely. they're doing. Definitely. Okay, so... 
biblical idea. We see it right here in Deuteronomy. And if you can get your head wrapped around the fact that there are these entities that have been allotted to the nations, and that God said, you're not to worship these entities because you are my people. Whereas those people, they were given to them, and they were given to them, by the way, as a punishment. Really, it's a punishment to both the gods because they get us, <laughs> not exactly what you want to inherit right. when you know anything about how wicked we are, but we get them. And not exactly what you want when you no. understand how <laughs> wicked Satan is, right? Right. So, exactly. um, and by the way, Satan, I believe, is the prince of Rome. Yeah. So, uh, do tell that helps put a different spin on it. You put a name to it, then all of a sudden you can go, Oh my goodness, the prince of Rome. Yeah, this is why he could offer Jesus all the kingdoms of the world because yeah. the Roman Empire ruled the world and he was the prince of Rome. So this is a punishment. They're getting they're getting each other, and let's see what will happen. But basically the idea, God knows full well what's going to happen. <clears throat> These guys are going to, and Plato even says this. He's like, well, in the beginning, it worked really well. It was the golden age, you know. There was It was perfect harmony, peace between us and the gods, but something went sour, and, uh, you know, we all started to get prideful and, um, you know, sin after sin after sin, and then you you end up, with where we're at today, basically, that's what he says. Yep. Um, I mean, this is literally why he's telling this is because Atlantis is destroyed for their wickedness. Yeah. And Poseidon was put over them. So um, this is not this is not a good thing um, because God created us to worship Him. All humans, all at all people born from Adam, and we see that worship taking place even in Genesis four with um, Cain and Abel. Cain does it wrong, but he's still worshiping the Lord. Abel does it right. King gets mad, he kills him. Right. People begin to call upon the name of the Lord um, later on at the end of that uh, chapter. So what we're seeing here in this Deuteronomy 32 worldview is basically God pulling Israel out of this darkness of the worship of the gods and saying, you are going to be my treasured possession. And so that takes us to the third stage of how I help people to understand this worldview. And for this one, we need to look very closely at verse 9 of Deuteronomy 32. Okay, so we've gone through 32, 7, and 8. We've mentioned verse 9, but now we're going to look at verse 9 in a little different way. And this is something that, um, for whatever reason, I never read or heard or saw Dr. Heiser talk about this in this way. But I think it's necessary, okay? So that verse says, The Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage or his allotted inheritance. So the question becomes, who is the Lord there? Who is the Lord there? Well, the word is Yahweh. And most people, I think, just with their mind, they just go, oh, it must be the Father. Or if they don't think Father, Son, Spirit, they just think, well, it must just be God. It must just be God. So they think about just the one being. But think about verse 8. When the Most High gave according to the number of the sons of God. So we saw the Father, Most High, sons of God. Sons receive inheritances, right? Right. So verse 9, the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. If the Lord here is receiving an inheritance, what does that make him of necessity? A son. 
has to be. Because fathers don't receive anything in God as an as inheritance. And, and God as God already has everything. So this has to be talking about the persons, persons right. of the Godhead. Yep. Verse 9 is the angel of the Lord. This is the Son of God receiving Israel as his inheritance. Hugely, right. hugely important. Yep. Okay. So now after, you know, if you go through the storyline and you go, you know, you start to see that God comes to Abraham and he says, takes him outside, says, see the number of the stars up there? That's how many of your descents are going to be. And then a couple of chapters later, he goes, hey, Abraham, I'm going to change your, he goes, hey, Abram, I'm going to change your name to Abraham, father of many nations. That's the promise that's going on here with the son part of it. So you have to ask yourself, who in the world is this? God that's covenanting with Abraham. And again, it's not just God in general. It's the son of God because he shows up as the angel of the Lord. He washes his feet. He has a face to face with him over who's going to be killed in Sodom. Um, They're talking to each other. They see each other. They hear each other. It's an embodied experience. It's the son of God. Yeah. Okay. And he's called simply here. He's just called the Lord, the Lord. And Jacob is his allotted inheritance. So it's into this that we come to the second verse of this third part. And this is really most of Psalm two, but it's really, it's verse eight, but let's read the kind of the whole thing here. Can I, can I, can I put just a real quick question on you? Not necessarily a question, just a, uh, <clears throat> an interesting observation of a by the way um talk a little bit about because i because i i talked to you um during research a while back probably about two years ago um the importance of the begotten son of god that he says that he got you know for god said his um yeah yeah only begotten son right right that word is important why is that word important very important <clears throat> well okay great great question too and very relevant because if you have sons of god and then this is the son of God in verse nine. Is any different than the other sons of God? And the answer is yes. He's the begotten son of God. Very important. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, the word is kind of doing triple duty, actually. It can mean only begotten. So in that sense, he's the only one that he's the only eternally begotten son of God. In other words, he's not created. Right. He's always eternally the son, whereas all these other sons are created. Okay, he's also the unique son. So the word begotten could derive from uh, the word, the Greek word monogenes there can either mean, can either come from the root to beget or unique. Those are very similar Greek words. So if he's the unique son, it's the same idea. There's no other son like this son. In what way? Well, because he's very God of very God. He is God. In fact, John 1.18 it kind of helps people see this and it really freaks people out when they read it in the ESV. (laughs) So it says, no one has ever seen God. The only God that's actually literally the only begotten God who is at the father's side has made him known. Well, wait, 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 wait. There's two gods in that verse. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the father's side has made him known. 
what? How, how in the world am I supposed to make sense of that? Right. How can there be two gods? Well, it's because it's speaking of God in the persons here, not in the divine essence. There's only right. one God. That's clear everywhere in the Bible. Yeah. But in the sense of there is a father God and there is a son God. In this case, the father's mentioned by name, but the son is called the only begotten. The ESV just calls him the unique son. Um, so he's the, the, the only God. He's unique. And then the other one is beloved. There's also a wordplay with beloved but with those. And uh, beloved is what, you know, the father calls Jesus at his baptism and at the transfiguration, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Nobody else gets that title from God except for the, the eternal son of God. In the Old Testament, he's the angel. In the New Testament, he's Jesus. Does that answer that question? Absolutely. Yeah, I just, like I said, I wanted, I, I felt it was, I, was, I felt it was relevant to, to bring that one up right there because because I know that at one point um, in in working on the on that particular segment the the controversy or the sons the sons of God you know uh, it, the Bible goes out of the way at least at least the translation our translation goes out of its way to say that he's the only begotten son so that differentiates him than all like you said all the created gods. And super important question just for, for us to realize that this son here is unique. There is no one like him. He is not just the first of many. He is before all things and created the many. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Okay. But nevertheless, he's still receiving an inheritance. And that inheritance at this point in time, starting with Abraham and going into the nation of Israel, is that people, the, the Jewish people. They are his allotted inheritance but it doesn't stay that way and this is what's so cool and this is why i love giving people this whole kind of series of verses in a row because it really helps them see why in the world this supernatural worldview matters and it matters because it's the most christocentric god exalting christ honoring thing i can i can tell people you know in terms of salvation history in terms of us you know uniting humans and heavenly beings together in terms of the whole package right so psalm 2 is the second stage in this so deuteronomy 32 9 is the first stage in this part of it because he's inheriting israel now psalm 2 expands it it starts off with the question why the nations rage and the people fought in vain so nations and peoples that's fine and the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel. Now, that's an interesting one because kings of the earth is set against the rulers, which would make you tend to think the rulers aren't of the earth. And in fact, that's the same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament as the prince of Persia. The rulers are the heavenly beings, I believe. Yep. So the kings of the earth and their Correspondent heavenly rulers, they're all counseling against who? Well, now you have another two, uh, another pair, the Lord and against his anointed. So the first Lord is the Father, and the second is the Son. He's called the anointed or the Messiah. Yep. His anointed. Okay? And then what do they do? They say, let's burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, we don't want to obey anything they have to tell us. We do not want them to be our master. Yep. So then it says, he who sits in heaven in the heavens laughs. 
and the Lord holds them in derision. So I think father and son here are laughing and scoffing at the stupidity of the people and the gods. And why? Because it says, he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fear. He's saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. There's your begotten word, although yeah. it's different in Hebrew. Right. But nevertheless, it's still the same idea. So this is one of the most, verse 7 here is one of the most um, quoted verses in the New Testament for Jesus. So this is a psalm about Jesus. The one, you know, the Lord and his anointed, that's Father and Jesus. Um, the one who sits in heaven laughs and the Lord holds him in derision. That's Jesus and the Father. And then again here, I have set my king on my holy hill. That's Father sits the son on his holy hill. I have said, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. And then verse 8 is the one that's so relevant. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So in other words, Israel was never meant to be the end all of this. It, Israel was supposed to bring the nations to, to God through their own righteousness and um, missionary endeavors, but they didn't do it. But God knew that, and God had a plan anyways. And we know that because he changed Abraham's name to the father of many nations, <laughs> not just one nation. Right, right. So then you come to Psalm 82, which is the capstone of this whole deal. And it says this. Starts, we'll read the whole, the whole, the whole uh, text here. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods he holds judgment. So the world is the divine council. Well, this is the uh, this is the court of heaven. It is heavenly beings. And uh, in Psalm 89, it's very explicit that 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 this court, this council, uh, is in heaven, in the skies, and that it is God's. It's angelic beings. Again, very, very, um, again, very reminiscent of the way that the Greeks uh, imagined. Uh, the pantheon of gods. And Very yeah, and not just the Greeks. And it's not just Mount Olympus. You you find this in Scandinavia. You find this in Japan. You find this in the American Indians. You find this in the Mesoamericans. The Aztecs have it. Yeah. The Egyptians have it. The Babylonians have it. Everybody has it. This is not unique to Israel. What's unique is how they conceive of the god uh, who is over the divine council. Yeah. He can't be deposed. He's not like Zeus or, you know, before him, Kronos, who can just be taken out. Right. Um, because he's the creator God. So let, let and, me, let, let, and, and I, again, I don't want to derail you from the, from the main thread that you're, that you're, that you've got going. When, um, when we interviewed, uh, his name escapes me right now, our, our Egyptian linguistics guy in, uh, in Cairo, um, he made a very, um, he kind of, he kind of picked on me a little bit because I said to him, you know, what does in, in imagining what heaven looks like, the average person imagines, you know, you have the Trinity and you got a bunch of angels, right? But really, if you look at it from a pragmatic standpoint, um, there is, and I used the word and, and he, and he made fun of me at first, but then he had to, <laughs> he had to take it back. Um, I said, there is a, there is a civilization, if you will, in heaven. You know, a, a, 
you know. And he's and he kind of laughed at me and he said, "Ah, oh, he in good in good in good fun, you know." you know the good spirit is being funny but i said you americans you know you guys you guys like you know like your 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 order you know your civilization you know i don't know that i'd call it a civilization but when he started talking about it you know he said you know so what is heaven like you know he said I, you know you have you have ranks you know you have you have uh, uh he, he goes I, I don't think i don't think he needs i don't think he needs bodyguards you know but he's got ministers you know and he said so i guess you could you could call it a civilization, you know. So he had to kind of cave on that and and you know and go and use that word. But so my question to you would be, and I just I'd, I'd love your thoughts on this. Would be when we're talking about a council, when we're talking about ministers, obviously every single being in that council, minus the begotten Son and the Holy Spirit, um, was created by God, you know, and so. What capacity do you feel that they function in those the, that that council? Is it is it a? It, it certainly can't be. It isn't. I'll just say it. It isn't in an advisory capacity. God doesn't need them to. You know, I want to make sure that I'm getting the. You know, that I'm doing the right thing. You concur? You know, I don't see that being the case. What do you What do you feel that looks like? Yeah. It, so it's not. It, yeah. It's not advisory in the sense that God needs somebody to help him think through how he's right. going to govern the world. Right. 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 But it's rather it's that God um, gave to these. Um, this is also this would also another bunny trail, but it could be in a whole nother show. Yeah. God gave to um, his sons of God, whether they're heavenly or earthly, his image. And so he, he wants them to rule as vice regents, if you think of it like that, as little princes where he's the king, because it pleases him to give beings. Um, intelligence and self-awareness and consciences and all these kinds of things he he wants to share that with his creation it's called communicable attributes you know incommunicable attributes are that god's omnipotent omnipresent yeah um all all knowing um all those kinds of things uh, the only one who is without sin but communicable attributes are things like knowledge we have knowledge we just don't have all knowledge yeah right um, we have holiness, but we're not perfectly holy, and we can fall away from that. Yeah. So these communicable attributes in us are—they're mutable. They're, we, they change in us. Yeah. We can do them well, or we can do them not well. And so we're actually going to see as this uh, psalm continues, just in the next three verses, part of what it was that they were supposed to do, and what he—he he originally gave them. Uh, uh, set them over the nations to do like God. God didn't just do it punitive. Um, it was that, but he also wanted them to rule well. And that's where that idea that Plato in the golden age comes from, what, you know, how perverted or whatever his idea of that was, it's neither right. here nor there. The point right. was they were supposed to rule well because he gave them authority. He gave them rulership over, over the nations. And just like God gave Adam dominion in the garden of Eden as his son, Adam was the son of God, as as Luke calls him. Yeah. You know? yeah. And what what's the point of that? Well, dominion is one of the main points of being a son of God. Um, rulership, authority over the sphere that God um, put you in charge. Yeah. Which which I guess works works uh, you know in a microcosm as much as it does all in in uh, in proportion. You know, the, he, he and he get he continues to give 
from the princes. Well, princes of the air, I guess, became something else. But, 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 but yeah, that dominion goes goes down. You've got his creation ruling over the air. You know, the the powers of the air, Adam over the garden, et cetera, et cetera, to all the way down to us, our individual houses, land, purposes, careers, you know. Exactly. I mean, the, the, the creation mandate of dominion for Adam was the earth. And so all his children, it's wherever they are on the earth, you know. And then the idea seems to be that in the heavenly realms, the sons of God had rulership up there. But this place is such a great jewel, <laughs> this earth, that they wanted it for themselves. And God didn't give it to them. And that really made Satan upset. And so he, uh, you know, that, that's really the impetus for the temptation and why he wanted Eve to fall, hoping that if she, she and Adam fell, that they'd be cast away, which is exactly what happened, and that maybe they might get authority, which is exactly what happened. Yeah, right, exactly. So we will come back to the idea of the gods here in a minute, but... Um, because it's also related to the Israel sons of God thing in Deuteronomy 32, eight, but we can't, I want to, I want to give us more information so that we can understand better why that um, change is in that Deuteronomy 32, eight verse and what is going on in verse one here. But let's look first and see what they did. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? And then Selah is the word that means pause probably. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So God is like, I set you as judges over the peoples, and you refuse to do what I told you to do. Now, people will say, well, gods can't judge like that. They don't do anything for the widows. and the." Well, of course they do. That's the whole point of God, the Lord, setting up these laws in the book of Deuteronomy and other places where he is the God of the orphan and the widow. That's what he says throughout the Psalms. I'm the God of the orphan and the widow. I take care of the helpless and the homeless. You, and so that was the job they were supposed to do. How? Well, first and most important way is by giving the people just laws so that they would actually know how to live and rightly, but they didn't do that. They gave them corrupt laws that caused, just like what we're seeing in our civilization right now. When, yep. when the law goes away, what happens to the people? And so if somehow there's a spiritual element component to the laws that are given to the nations, well, these, these creatures did not do what they were supposed to do. So this idea that gods can't rule is ridiculous. They rule through the king, just like Yahweh appoints Saul and then David and then David's children after him to rule in his stead as a really a vice regent, as a a king of this particular area. God's still sovereign over the whole thing and the king of kings, but it's it's this more microcosm of of places where they rule. Do you think that do you think that during those those early years that you know we're we're talking about over such a big span of time from a, again from a practical standpoint from a from a working standpoint it would seem to me that a lot of those sons that were ruling these these princes that were ruling um these areas that, that god assigned to them they were probably working cross realm wouldn't you think with kings with authorities with with um with the leadership if you will of the human realm i would think no every 
every every every ancient culture believed that the kingship came from the gods that the gods established Absolutely. a particular group of people yes and so that by definition you have to have some sort of interaction between the gods and the king how did that happen was it physically in person was it through visions was it in dreams was it through smoking ayahuasca i don't know how it well, the happened thing is, the thing is i mean and we we know this that in in a lot of the civilizations the kings were seen as almost as gods so it makes you wonder it makes you wonder if if in order to to prop up the kingdoms or prop up the kings um if maybe uh like for example the the, the story of pharaoh and moses you know where they where they actually were given a certain amount of superpower uh or supernatural power whether it be through their witch doctor that a lot of these people had you know or their or their or their chief magician or whatever but yeah. something that gave them clout something that gave them believability of the supernatural so that the common man would fear them yeah um well we could go down like a uh, conspiracy a conspiracy bunny trail for this one <laughs> although I, I think there's biblical justification for it so yeah. when um when uh god picked saul it's really interesting because it says that he was a head taller than all the other people Right. And the reason why is because the Israelites wanted a king like all the other kings had. What does that mean? Yeah. Well, I think what it means is that the other kings, the original bloodlines were Nephilim. They were the ones who ruled. And this is why you have, like in Greek mythology, the demigods are the ones ruling here on yeah. Earth. Yeah. That's the Nephilim are the uh, are the uh, um, parallel to the demigods of the Greeks. Yeah. Or the Babylonians or, or wherever you want to go. So if that's true, then that means that those kings actually had something in their bloodline that already had what you're talking about. The the I don't know how it works. Right. The, but the ability to um, have increased divination or magic or whatever the case might be. Well, we know there. that a lot of the a lot of the ites, for example, a lot of them yep. had definitely, definitely had nothing uh, on, the, on the table of nations. I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, and I know that Gary uh, Wayne said this, that they are the only, the only branch in the in the family tree that doesn't have a beginning, you know. So, um, so yeah, we do know that. At least we know that the Ites had a lot of a lot of them, and a lot of the guys, that, a lot of the kingdoms that were ordered to be destroyed and burned down to the ground, you know, cats, dogs, everything, yep. Yep. were yep. were had had ties to the Nephilim. You remember so, when um, when King Saul he loses his his uh, his kingship really because he he sacks this place and takes this guy named Agag the right. Amalekite who's the king and he keeps him alive and he's like well God will be really happy with me for that and Samuel comes in and he's furious right well the thing is that Agag we don't get we don't get descriptions of his height although the Jews if you go and read Jewish folklore and, and rabbis and stuff they all say that he was a giant. Really? And the reason why is because he came from the Amalekites. And the Amalekites um, are one of those groups in Genesis 14 that are in the giant wars. Okay, so he, another perfect example. So God wanted these people utterly destroyed, and Saul wouldn't do it. And so he loses the kingship. Yeah. It's interesting that, that God gave Israel, in one way, somebody who looked like these other kings but he wasn't he was still just a jew so then he picks david who's just like this little runt guy 
you know, probably five, four, five, five, something like right. that. <laughs> because when he ends up fighting Goliath, you know, that's the whole, that's the whole storyline. That's the seed storyline. The little guy. The, uh, the woman's seed crushing the head, which he literally did. He literally cuts off Goliath's head, the seed yeah. of the serpent. Yeah. So verse five now, so these gods are supposed to rule justly. They don't. God gives another uh, statement here. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Well, what is that talking about? Well, it's because heavenly beings are ruling wickedly everywhere. It's into this, actually, and this and the, the Deuteronomy stuff, that Paul goes to Athens. He tells these people, no, um, God's near every one of you all. You've just been groping around in darkness because whoever's been ruling over you, this is, is evil. But this unknown God, I want to proclaim him to you. And all you have to do is call upon him, you know? So he, yeah. he, he calls the Athenians out of that darkness. The foundations of the earth are shaken everywhere and gives them the gospel. Verse six is really important. Um, it says, I said, you are God's sons of the most high, all of you. So here's the sons of God again, sons of the most high. It's the exact same idea as Genesis six. It's the same idea as Deuteronomy 32, eight, the sons of God. They keep showing up in all these places. They're all talking about the same storyline. It's not a coincidence. Yeah. I said, you are God's sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die. Well, now, wait a minute. Some people will say that the gods here are the Jews or the ruler, the rulers of, of Israel. Where does that come from? So now it takes us back up to verse 1. If you go in and read the New American Standard Version, it would say something like, God has taken his place in the great assembly, the assembly of Israel. In the midst of the rulers, he holds judgment. And the idea there is that they're interpreting this as saying that God is judging the, the rulers of Israel for ruling badly. But the thing is, there's no justification for that anywhere in the context of this psalm or in the parallel with Psalm 89 or in the Deuteronomy 32 worldview, which is all the passages that we've been looking at. Think about this. Why would a man be told that he's going to die like a man? That's called a tautology. It's redundant. Yeah. And it's yeah. not necessary to say. And when that's, it says that's all a, like an insult, it's a, really. it's just, it just yeah. it's ridiculous to, to say that. Right. Say like fall like any prince. Well, they are princes because they're archons. They are the they're the gods of the nation, so they will fall. They're not without. They're not exempt from um, being judged. Right. Paul says that. Don't you know you will judge angels? Satan is going to be judged. Satan's going to be cast in the lake of fire. Yeah. So yes, these creatures do have an end, and that's the point here. But then verse 8 comes along. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Now remember, in Deuteronomy, the Son of God inherited Israel. In Psalm 2, the promise was that if he asked, he would inherit the nations. Now... This one is, arise, O God, and judge the earth. Who is that? Has to be the Son of God. Right. And now it's no longer, it, well, just ask me and I'll give it to you. Now it is, it's a done deal. Yeah. You shall inherit the nations. Why? 
because this God has just taken his place in the divine council, this son of God, and he has just held court and showed them that they are all guilty of violating the law and they will be punished. Yeah. Meaning that there's only one left standing. And what will happen? He will inherit the nations. And this is the language and the promise into which Jesus is born of a woman. Very important, because in the Old Testament, he's not a woman. He's not born of a woman. In the Old Testament, he is um, an angel. In the New Testament, he comes as a man. He comes as the son of man and the son of God, both man and God. Because the gods held rule. He is the king of kings and the, and the only God can do what he, he's going to do. But the promise was given to men, to Adam. The promise was given that the son of, that they would be sons of God. And so in the New Testament, Christians become sons of God. Do me a favor, if you don't mind. Talk, expand a little bit. You said in the Old Testament, he comes as an angel. Are you making reference to the angel? Of the angel of the Lord, yeah. 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 In the Old talk, Testament. Talk, 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 for, for, for the people that don't know, expand on that just a little bit, if you would. Because that that, like, what you're saying makes total, total sense. So in the Old Testament, Jesus is the angel of the Lord. He comes as the angel of the Lord. He he, he, he is the, the angel is the God of Israel. Jacob says, my God, my God, the angel who is with me all my days. The angel is the one who says, I covenant with Israel. I'm the one who covenanted with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You broke my covenant, he says. This is the son of God who's inheriting Israel. In the New Testament, he doesn't have angel flesh. He's not an angel. He is now incarnated in human flesh. He was not a human being before this. Right. Almost everybody gets this wrong. The angel of the Lord is not a human. He's an angel. He doesn't have human flesh. He has angel flesh, whatever that is. He's not a human being. He's not incarnate in the, in the sense of being a human being in the Old Testament. He's still yeah, there. Likely, He's still and, real. And likely that, that same entity type that... that, that that crosses back and forth between realms a lot, you know the guy. Yeah, sure. The guy that that guy that can that can bring the 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 to Mary, the guy that can fight with the Prince of Persia, you know, and the guys that can sit down in Sodom and Gomorrah and have dinner with. Uh, exactly. Exactly. With, with lots lots of nephews, you know. So the angel, and, and in fact, uh, um, me and my buddy Matt, who wrote the Angel of the Lord book with me, we talk about this idea called the poof theory. Some people are like, well. God is just kind of poofing in for a moment, and then, and then this whatever this thing is that called the angel of the Lord, it just poofs out of existence. No, it doesn't. It goes back to heaven. Heaven's a real place. It doesn't. It's like he's, <clears throat> it's not like he exists and then he doesn't exist. He's there. He's up here. Now he comes down here. Then he goes back up there. It comes back down here. It's just by the by the, by the laws of physics of the spirit realm, that particular. That particular type of being can do that. We perceive it as poof. Yes, yes. They're just just they're just waltzing back and forth as they need to. Yep. Now somehow in the womb of Mary, this second person, the Trinity, that was somehow um, was somehow the angel of the Lord. Now this second person is this man Jesus. Don't ask me how all that works because I have no idea. But we'll, I we'll believe never that's what the scripture absolutely. Teaches. It's completely unique in all of world history. So Absolutely. Good luck understanding it. But we can well, at least I mean, it, explain. It, it's, 
Well, and it's and it's up there with with truly and honestly, you know, in a, in a in a manner without faith, trying or claiming or 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 yeah, trying to understand how the Trinity works. You know, we exactly. just don't. We just don't. You know, and that's okay, um, because some things have to be relegated to faith. So, so yeah, you're right. You and that right. faith is not irrational, I and mean, we can think no, through it. But um, but it is faith. You you. You have to believe these things are true. And the Bible and the Bible tells us that we will understand it one day, which I think is amazing. You know. Great point. So Jesus comes and as the man, then he carries out all these things Adam was supposed to do, and then he ends up inheriting the nations. He he becomes all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So go and make disciples of what? Of all nations. This is the fulfillment, the begin, initial fulfillment of Jesus taking his reign and authority. We're not waiting for him to carry out, to somehow pick up authority in the future. He has all authority right now. Something that a lot of people forget, especially when times get really bad and they think God has forgotten us or doesn't care or isn't able to do anything about it. No, Jesus has that authority right now. He's delegated that authority to the church. And if the church decides that they're going to drop that authority by not preaching the law and the gospel, then what do you expect is going to happen in this world? So that's the, really, that's, that's how this worldview is so important to me, why I've been so fixated on for so Absolutely. long and why I love to tell people about it. And, you know, it's a, it's a hard thing to get your mind wrapped around, especially if you're not used to thinking about supernatural kinds of things. but. It's not impossible to do, and there are, you know, there are certain texts that we can go to that create a thread, a narrative that teach us this other side of redemptive history Absolutely. that comes from the supernatural world. And when you, that's why I said it's kind of like moving into living color because it's not just God talking to men, and then salvation is only about us. This is about the whole universe. This involves His heavenly creation. It involves our interactions with them, our failings with them, our sins and idolatry, our fall at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 6 and Genesis 3. All those have supernatural components with the gods right there with them. And we see the punishment in the Old Testament. We see how God gave the nations over to darkness to worship, and they ended up worshiping these creatures. And um, it's into that incredible wickedness that the grace of God shines so bright, brighter, if you understand this, than it does apart from it. Because you can see just how much he overcame in sending Christ. And it's not just that he overcame um, our sin, which is infinitely incredible enough, yeah. but he overcomes the demonic, satanic world as well, defeats them, deposes them, de disinherits them, and Jesus ends up taking all the nations, which is beginning now in, in the Great Commission, and one day will be, you know, culminated when he returns again. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's, um, it makes me wonder sometimes, <clears throat> you know, um, in a key moment, such a key moment, crucial moment in the, in the, um, in the grand scheme of God's plan, his perfect plan of salvation, what the spirit world must have looked like during, in the days, the moments leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus, you know, 
we know that there's you know activity and you know for example the you know the the uh, the angel um, fighting with the prince of Persia you know if there's resistance on a simple message you know if there's this this fight going on can you imagine what it must have looked like in the spiritual realm on the days leading up or on the day of the most important event in the history of creation I mean I think I think C.S. Lewis tries to get at that a little bit with all the wicked creatures you know that are going after Aslan try to kill him and then when they yeah. end up killing him and they're all standing around the table and stuff like that I mean those are the those are your chimeras right there um, yeah. the demonic hordes the cows of Bashan all that kind of stuff um I think the gospels that when we really start to read the gospels and what Jesus is doing especially in the supernatural world in his ministry and then leading up to him going into Jerusalem you really can see this um attack and this um you know digging your feet in and getting ready for this final what they think will be the final battle where they put him to death yeah. um it's really amazing and so it's not and it's not oh, yeah. just pharisees i mean it's it's the devil himself I and mean, he's entering judas he's going after peter um you know he the things leading up to that at the transfiguration and jesus is trying jesus is trying to, to pray and they're sleeping exactly and he's he's all but told them he's all but told them they're gonna kill me you know he's i mean he's literally just told them that at, at you know at, at the last supper and can you can you just back me up in prayer and these guys are just can't keep their <laughs> eyes open you know so yeah i mean it's it's very yeah you're right you're absolutely right it's very very obvious that there's so much so much happening in that spiritual world that we don't think about and when once your eyes are open to this, <clears throat> to this supernatural realm in a way that's real so like I mean I know it's such a weird thing to me that as conservative Christians we believe in the supernatural. We believe in God, a trinity, we believe in a resurrection, we believe in the deity of Christ. You know, we believe in miracles. We say that we believe these things, but as soon as you start talking Stop about, right there though. But stop right there. Don't go much further. Don't don't get deeper exactly, into it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly what it is. It's and it's it's almost surreal and and uh I think we've really been We've been taken over by materialism and naturalism and evolution Technology. and rationalism way, way, way more than we like to think that we have. Oh, absolutely. It's funny. When, when, we started, when we started the film, the, the Angels and Giants, um, I have a very dear friend of mine who's one of our editors. Um, there was an answer quest. And uh, he, I mean, great guy, man. He's a, he's a solid believer, been a believer you know, probably most of his life. and. Um, and so he, he was trying to wrap his brain around what the film was about, you know. So I told him, you know, it was, you know, the story of the Nephilim and, you know, Genesis 6. And, and, and he looks at me. And again, man, if you knew this guy, you'd say, I know this guy's a Christian, he's a believer. But he looks at me, he goes, really? And I said, yeah. And he goes, you have enough to do, you have enough to do a two hour special on, on that, you know? <laughs> and I said, dude, you could make a career out of this, you know. Yeah, people have exactly. there. There is so much to talk about because I think that's I think that's where the disconnect happens. That the the, the mention of the Nephilim is so brief in that in that passage that it kind of gets siloed into its own little account of this little thing here, and that's it. Well, people don't realize that it's basically the, if if you were looking at it underwater, it's just the the you know, the hump of the whale that keeps, you know, that goes yeah. back underneath, you know, exactly. it's, it's, uh, it's, it's such a, such a big and, and uh, all encompassing 
subject. And like you're right, and and, and and when you when you start to see it that way, you realize you realize that the entire it really underscores what a thread, what a perfect thread. A, a, um, what's the what, there's a word for it? Uh, a stream of consciousness. The entire uh, story of the Bible is, you know, it is it is an unbroken stream. Once once you start to see that way, you just see that it is it really that battle that gets declared in the garden rages on every single verse and chapter and verse of the Bible, all the way. It's through. always there, always there. Yeah. Now, one one maybe kind of last thing to just to tell people is that people a lot of people think that this is not knowable stuff and that you're just speculating about all this stuff, you know, and you and you're yeah. running to the pseudepigrapha and the apocrypha and Greek literature and blah, blah, blah. And you're just bringing all this into the Bible that's not actually there. We haven't done anything anywhere else except the Bible tonight, have we? We've only looked at the scripture. And in fact, we've been, we've tried to be very careful with what the language actually says. Yeah. Um, and you can get it from the Bible. It's just that, and I think I've got a kind of an outro line for our, for our podcast now. I got yeah. I got the verse that I think explains what yeah. what I want to do with this. And it's Proverbs 25, 2. It is the glory of God to conceal things, but it's the glory of kings to search things out. Yeah. Yeah. Just because Absolutely. something is hidden, it doesn't mean that it's not understandable, that it's not discoverable. It just takes time and it takes work and effort. And and why is it the glory of kings to search things out? Because when you discover these things, it's like, I can't believe that God is letting me see this when so many other people don't see it. It's a Absolutely. really, it's a marvelous, wonderful feeling uh, that can belong to anybody if they will search God's word. Absolutely. And, and the thing is that when you're in, when you're in the process of, of seeking out, you know, when you're in the process of, of researching these things, um, you're growing. You know, you're growing spiritually. You're, you, God's word never returns void, even, you know, even by, even by accident. You know what I mean? Like when you know, let alone when you're when you're seeking. You know, when you're digging, when you're looking, um, you, you grow. God throws down the gauntlet. It seems and says, "I know something you don't know, but find <laughs> out." <laughs> you know, exactly. I've told it to you. Now go see if you can figure it out. It's uh, it's it's funny. I, I started to tease you when you said that you that you felt that um that Satan was the prince of the throne, you know. Um, I started to tease you and say, uh, hey, watch it, because that's you know, what us preachers kind of kind of kind of like uh, dig our heels in to say that the Antichrist comes out of Rome, you know. <laughs> but but um, but what's funny about it is um, what's funny about it is excuse me, sorry, um. Well, well you we we uh we we reform people. We actually in our confessions say that the antichrist is the papacy. <laughs> oh, right. oh, yeah. Well, you know, man, I I yeah, I I am totally I, I completely completely could see that, you know. We we need to do we need to do a a, a podcast episode on on that whole thing. That's Oh yeah. A lot to talk about. Oh yeah. No, absolutely. Um but yeah, I I um what I started to say was, you know, there is a, the, the, the verse where it talks about the, the, the mark of the beast, you know, where with the exception of the verse that you just quoted, you know, um, 
that's that's one passage where it says where, where it almost challenges you you know it's a number of man you know uh figure it out figure yeah. out the number of the beasts yeah, yeah. you know so yeah god god likes to do that god likes to hold these secrets and challenge you to look into them to, to decipher them you know there's so much gosh there is so much that's hidden you know um and, and it's almost like god gets a kick out of it you know he leaves these amazing, amazing things like like what. And again, I don't want to get myself in trouble here because I am not endorsing gematria. I'm not doing that. <laughs> but what to me, what is interesting, and we, I, I'm sure you saw it on the film, when you when you can actually figure out that the number of pi, three point one four, actually has a traceable, um, using gematria, <laughs> um, a traceable um, origin in the name of god you know um so so it but, it, but my, my point isn't necessarily to say oh wow that's really cool which i think is cool but 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 to say god hides god loves hiding leaving us all kinds of easter eggs for us to find he throws the gauntlet down so i agree with you 100 percent. i think um yeah we we've not we've not strayed from um we're not we're not this is not the episode where we're digging into proving uh the the the, you know the benefits of the book of enoch or anything like that um but just within the bible just just purely with scripture there is just so much to be unearthed and discovered yeah and you know with something like gematria i mean which is which is a real thing um because the hebrew and the greek both have numbers attached to the letters so it's a thing and that can get really esoteric but the stuff we're talking about here i mean it's esoteric only in the sense that it's hidden but it's only hidden because we've forgotten about it and yeah. because we're not looking for it you know um you, when you're when you're a, a parent you have a 2 year old you hide easter eggs different than you do if they're 18 year old right exactly does anybody who's 18 do they still do 18 year old easter eggs i suppose <laughs> i think we probably did that with an 18 year old but you know you hide a you hide a easter egg for a 2 year old in absolutely the most plain sight you possibly can right I wouldn't, you know, that's not esoteric, right? It, but it's still hidden to that kid because Absolutely. they don't know where it is and they're, and they're going to look for it. And that's really what we're, what we're looking well, for. Well, and, and like I said, again, like bringing my friend again, but it, you know, bringing him back up again, he's somebody who, who knows the Bible. He's somebody who, you know, who's probably read it all his life and everything, but it's, it's that daring to think outside of the box and daring to look at the verses that are, that are lesser known, lesser, lesser heralded, if you will. and and uh and all it takes is looking at something my, myself man i mean my you know I've, I've told you this before before i i knew the story of the nephilim i knew you know but we, we i had treated that that scripture almost like a speed bump you know you right. read and you go right over and you keep going you know right. so um but yeah it's that it's that stopping to look outside the box and looking to to see that there is a lot, a lot deeper than there is at face value. And the, the amazing thing is, you know, and obviously our thing is giants and the Nephilim and the Watchers and all that. But the amazing thing is that the Bible is so chock full of um, of these type of things in infinite ways with other topics and other, um, you know, topics of of, uh, of the things that we face, or, you know, the things that we face every day. Um, and, and the more we dive into, into the Word, the more the more revelation he gives us and he hides the eggs according to our age (laughs) you know it's funny the uh one of the interesting things about this topic is that um i think a lot of people 
they have a tradition that they've inherited and the yes. tradition well we all inherit tradition tradition is not a bad thing but when tradition is allowed to um stop your thinking process um and you just you just default to tradition then you've kind of given up the whole idea of sola scriptura where the bible is what our authority is and um what's funny is that nothing that we've talked about here tonight wasn't known by christians in the early church it's just that you know other things kind of get in the way for good reasons and bad reasons and uh you forget it and then you just kind of let what you've heard um dictate how you think instead of actually going to the text and letting it tell you what it says and unfortunately that's that the, the road of religion is paved with a lot of that a lot of it is absolutely so anyway i hope this was helpful for people and um you know it's one of my favorite topics and I know Rudy likes this topic. Absolutely. Much as Thank I you do. so much. So I hope that it's been, it's been helpful for people and that you can go back and, you know, we'll put up verses and stuff so you can look at them on the Absolutely. video. If you're just listening in a car or whatever, you can still get a lot out of it and go back and think through these things and you just get the argument in your head. And, and it's always there to go and listen to again. So remember, Absolutely. like I said, it's the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings to search them out and uh, you've been listening to giant steps and i'm doug van dorn if you like what you've heard tonight please go and uh subscribe to our channel help us build this thing up you know we're, we're brand new into it and you know we, we need to get uh some sort of traction that's what we want to get we want people to be able to hear the information that we're that we're putting out there and uh you know the interviews are coming up and all the stuff that we have planned so do that and like it and, and tell your friends about it. Share it wherever you're at on your platforms. And we will talk to you next time. Absolutely. What do they say, Doug? Smash that like and that subscribe button. Smash that like button.